everyone and welcome to the third episode of the DU Players Chat Show podcast. Uh, Alton here, the chairperson of DU Players, and I'm joined today by Shirka, our front of house manager and an exceptional costume and stage designer in their own right. And of course, today again, we are joined by a very special guest. So without further ado, we are delighted today to be joined by Irish costume designer and sustainability activist Sinead Gadao, a graduate of French and Drama in Trinity College. Sinead has worked as a costume designer on a mountain of movies and TV shows from Little Women, Beauty and the Beast to and Macbeth to Wonder Woman 1984, This Way Up and Small Axe. Sinead also created the Costume Directory, an industry-defining guidebook on sustainability and costume design. It is with great pride and honour then that we have Sinead here with us today to accept an honorary patronage from all of us at Dublin University Players. Sinead, thank you very much for being here. Thank uh, you so much. As I said before we started, I'm very sorry we're not in the building to have like nice lights and, and <laughs> a drink and um, a nice award to present you with, but we will absolutely post that out um, after the after yeah. today. Um, so thank just you. again- I'm it, very honoured, it's lovely. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you here and I'm going to hand you over to Shirka who's going to conduct the Q&A. Cool. Um, so hello. <laughs> um, the first question then I'd like to ask you is then just about uh, your time in Trinity and in the Trinity degree. Obviously like our experience is with drama. Um, we know how diverse it can be. Like you can be an actor one minute, costume designer the next, a stage manager. Um, in very quick succession so I'm wondering what your own experience of the drama course was like like did you find automatically a home in costume or did you try lots of other things? Um, yeah my, my experience with drama um, was quite strange in a way because it took me a long time to figure out why it was I'd, I'd chosen to go and do uh, the drama course. I I was 17, just turned 17 when I did my leaving certs and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I thought I'd go and do an arts degree and I knew I wanted to do French. And then for some reason chose drama and then got in and found myself there on my, my first day of the course, certainly going, oh my God, why am I here? I think I I'd always loved drama, I'd loved theatre, but when I actually started doing the course, I, I hadn't really gotten my head around what the course was. And I knew I didn't want to be an actress and I knew, but I wasn't really sure. I wasn't really sure essentially why I was doing it. And I think <laughs> on, in the beginning, um, I remember my first tutorial and we started doing the Greek classics. And I, having done the, my leaving certs, I was suddenly in a room with a lot of people who had done their A-levels and people who had done English and classics and drama specifically for, for three years. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, a guy who was sitting next to me leaned over and he said, oh, you know, um, Oedipus is spelled with an O, not an I. And I'd never even heard of Oedipus. I was like, <laughs> so That's out of my terrible. death. <laughs> and so suddenly I had to kind of, um, I think it was really in players that I, I learned to love theatre and I learned kind of about that you didn't just have to be an actress you could be a producer you could be a director you could just find a script and decide you were going to put on a play and and I really got involved I suppose from a more vocational point of view and then I found my feet on the drama course because I realized I loved reading plays and I loved sort of imagining in my head what what this play could be and I developed a love of Irish theatre and so it was really one once I got into kind of my second and third year and then in third year I got to to do costume design and having always loved art and drawing and sewing and and having had the experience in players of getting to to do all of those things mm. um I realized that that's what I wanted to do and I, it was definitely a great grounding of having had the experience of studying theoretically uh 
different different forms of drama and theatre and everything like that and also having the practical experience of players and then realizing that costume design is what I wanted to do so by third year and fourth year I really just focused in on costume design and I got a job I worked as a dresser on a few different productions um, I worked at Smock Alley Theatre for a bit and yeah it was through that that I realized I really wanted to do costume design that's lovely it sounds well it sounds like a familiar path I suppose just being having the freedom to try out lots and lots of different things I suppose um, and yeah. so within that same vein then then what was it like to go from that kind of environment to Trinity um to RADA um so RADA actually was less of a culture shock in a funny way um, okay. I think uh quite there was quite a few people from Trinity College had actually gone on to RADA and so I'd spoken to people before I went over for my interview. And at that point, I was a lot more focused and knew what I wanted to do and knew that I wanted to work in costume and had a, a clearer idea of what the job entailed. Um, so I worked really hard uh, for my interview. And um, then when I got in, uh, yeah, I just had a more understanding. It was very much a vocational course. So while you were there, while you did learn pattern cutting and uh, mm -hmm. costume construction you also were working on all of the the shows that were happening at RAD at the time and you were working with industry designers so it wasn't that theoretical it was very much practical doing the job and learning on the job and yeah for me that was a great experience and also you're just meeting qu quite a range of different people who were all quite focused I think uh, when I started at Trinity I wasn't that focused and by the end um, I was you know by the time I went to RAD I'd already done four years of university and was going on to do another two so I knew yeah. that I kind of had to make it work at that point. Absolutely um, so then yeah you've been speaking about I suppose like trying lots of different things and then also like having to work with lots of different people um, so throughout your career as a costume designer, you worked with uh, Jacqueline Duran and of course, like obviously directors and actors and producers and um, the whole circus of people that it takes to make a show, I suppose. Um, so what in your mind then is, would you say, is there a beauty to collaboration or how do you find that process? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, for I think anyone, if you want to succeed, you have to collaborate really because you know, as you all know, when you're working on something, it can't just be an isolated costume. No one turns up to the cinema or to a theatre production just to see the costumes. Like, you know, <laughs> I'd love to think they would, but it's not a museum piece. It's not a fashion show. It's about, um, you know, you've done a good job if people don't really notice until the end, if they just kind of buy into an actor's performance and they buy into the whole concept and you're not really thinking you know, if you've got a heavy handed design or you've got a heavy handed director or anything like that, or an actor that's kind of stealing focus from everyone else, it, it jars in, in in any production, whether it's theatre mm -hmm. or film or television. And I think, um, yeah, so the main thing is to collaborate. And it's when you get into film and TV, it's, it's also really about collaborating with the production design, collaborating with the cinematographer, um, because you can create the most beautiful costumes but if someone you know if an actor doesn't believe it and they don't want to wear it or they don't wear it properly or it doesn't really fit with their performance um it's not going to look good if a cinematographer isn't going to shoot it in a way if they don't like it they're not going to frame it properly they're not going to light it well um they're not going to focus in you know if if you've got a cinematographer who knows what they're getting then you can say to them oh there's this really beautiful embroidery on the hemline and they might actually you know point the camera at what you've done. Whereas if you've got someone who isn't interested in that or 
they kind of say, well, we told you we were just going to shoot this much. So why did you bother putting all that work into the hem? You know, And um, so I think from the beginning, you really have to talk. You have to present your ideas. You have to be very clear about what you're doing. But you've also got to listen and you've got to really focus in on what the overall objective is. And it, essentially, you're all just facilitating the end product and you just want to make sure you're working with people who are on the same page. And I think if you can find people who you work with, who you've got a similar taste and you've got similar ideas, then that just makes it all so much easier because there's nothing worse than not kind of understanding what it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah, totally. Um, so you mentioned there that um, that sometimes a design is is maybe when it's working you almost don't notice it um i know that here in players sometimes if a show doesn't go right or it it, it maybe uh for many other reasons maybe a, a difficult show but afterwards people will say well at least you know i liked the costumes um <laughs> that kind of, that's kind of like the saving grace i'm wondering um if, if that kind of attitude is maybe reflected in the industry or if you find that maybe a design is always at its best when it's invisible if you like I think there's two different types I mean I think sometimes when you're working on something where um you know it's period or it's something that's not familiar to people they're much more likely to notice it so it can be more rewarding when you work on something that's got women in ball gowns because people notice a ball gown and you can if something's quite stylized or you've come up with a concept people are much more likely to notice it and appreciate it but for me, that's not always the most interesting thing to do. And I think um, it's always lovely and rewarding. And that is what people tend to notice. But actually, there's so many contemporary designers and people who work on things where you really just think, you know, you can see an actor and they're in the most battered leather jacket that you've ever seen. And you really believe that they've had it for 25 years or they've got some sort of keepsake that they're wearing. That's something... Mm -hmm you know, that that you might believe they picked up as a child or, or something like that. And those are the things that I think um, we don't notice, but we appreciate in terms of the overall uh, production, I think. And, and um, that to me is just as interesting, really, as sometimes as watching something that's kind of just all ball gowns. OK, um, so then if you go from that kind of end product, that general overall even subconscious effect, back to the very beginning like how do you begin a project like what's that process like for you um that to me is the most the beginning is the part that I enjoy the most I love research and I love um you know when I talk about drama I always wonder why I didn't do history but I really love um I kind of when you get a script and you initially read a script and you sort of break it down you figure out who the characters are and and what the various stage directions that a writer has put into something um or maybe there might be a book that you read to begin with and you get a lot of clues in that as, as to what they were envisaging. And then you sort of try and think, well, this isn't going to be in someone's head. We have to create this world for someone. So what what way are we going to go with that? And so often um, I'll come up with a concept that I will then present to, to a director and then they'll tell give their feedback and their ideas. And likewise with the production designer and everyone kind of comes on board with their ideas and then they all go into a pot and you sort of come up with something. Um, and for me, my process is always to try and figure out who these people are. So whether it's the 1920s or the 1860s or it's it's now, it's trying to figure out, OK, well, what kind of class are they? What how much money do they have? What sort of music do they listen to? What's their, pre you know, all of those sort of things you figure out. And then I love to look at 
the social history at the time, the political history at the time, um, and then try and find maybe real people or paintings or things that existed that are very visual and that show who those people are. Um, it's kind of easier in some ways if it's more recent history. So something like anything 20th century where you can look at photographs mm -hmm. and it's not just portraits. Because often if so something's a portrait, it can either be like, you know, the equivalent of airbrushed in a way that people are in their best dress or they're in their best <laughs> clothing or whatever, and it's not necessarily real. But if you can get like family photographs or um, find people that are similar to your characters and look at not just what they're wearing, but how they're wearing it. And so that's it tends to be my starting point. Cool. Um, sounds like a lot of research. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's, but for me, that's the part I find the most interesting, I think. Okay. And then you just hope that what you manage to do looks like the research. <laughs> you know, sometimes you get to the end and you're like, no, nah, that's sort of what I was planning. But, you know. Does it ever get there? Yeah, it can do. Hopefully it does, but it tends to evolve over time. Okay. Um, then speaking of evolution, then, do you think that there's much of a transition or how was your transition from theatre then into film? Like, is there much of a difference from how those two are conducted or do you think it's much of a muchness? Um, there is a big difference okay. um, and for me I never really had thought about working in anything other than theatre because that's where my training really was and I think at Trinity, at Samuel Beckett, Players, all of those things you're really focused on theatre. Again at RADA we never really spoke about film or TV. We did one project that was a, a TV project um, kind of in, internally but everything else was theatre and so it hadn't really occurred to me that I wouldn't work in theatre Okay. Um, and then I just got my first opportunity to work in film and I actually that's uh, over, over 10 years ago now and I haven't actually worked in theatre since and it just so happened in that way and I do really miss theatre because I love I love that side of it but there is a freedom to working in film and TV that you as a designer and um, you get to work a lot more on detail um, you get even just a lot more freedom I think and it is a different form and I suppose while learning on the job I've learned in that world even within film and tv they're kind of quite they're quite different um, okay. approaches and ways of doing things so um yeah I would love to go back to theatre and and have that opportunity again but I think I it would be a learning curve for me now to go back and do a theatre project and have to kind of recalibrate my brain and the way things are going to be seen because in film you're always thinking oh what will this look like on an IMAX screen that's the size of like 20 buses or something so you know that people are going to really fixate on a button or, or you know a seam or a bit of a detail or mm. a brooch or something like that those are the kind of things that people will really see and they'll be massive whereas in the theatre you have to think well what's someone in the very back gonna think you know and what are they gonna see and how are you gonna make it register and it's almost like uh yeah the opposite approach in a way well, yeah I wasn't really thinking about it like that and so then you, you were talking about like how you approach projects and you do a lot of research and then you want to really like almost get in on the character then and I think I have a good one here and that you want to that you like imagining what characters would have worn within the parameters of what existed at that time and um, so in Trinity at the moment we have this kind of concept bubbling up and um, that's the designer turg and um, that like a kind of a role that allows the designer to sort of influence the narrative and um, in a much more like hands-on way so I'm wondering like do you think that this factors into your work do you think do you find that this is something that exists in your industry and do you think that how much room is there in design for dramaturgy 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think in a way without thinking about it, that is what I, how I see a, a designer in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, because there's so much you're saying um, subconsciously to people without it necessarily being in dialogue. And in the same way you might, you know, a character might have a particular mannerism that isn't focused on and you don't specifically make the story just about that mannerism, but it's very integral to a character. Um, a character may also have a particular ring that has significance or a particular uh, way of wearing something, or they may have a particular color that's useful to them, or things like that, that you're not, that's not part of the dialogue, but it's there in the subtext. Um, same from, a, you know, there might be a, a picture in the background that's their parents or something like that, that you never specifically reference, but it might be an interesting detail. And I think there's a lot of things in terms of a narrative that visually an audience is taking in without necessarily it being spoken about or being in the in the dialogue um, and in the script. And I think a good designer will really consider all of those aspects and not just be taking kind of the black and white text that's there, but actually thinking about the overall image and um, how they can communicate a lot more. So not, and I think I actually did my dissertation while I was at Trinity on semiotics and the semiotics of clothing in mm. society and how you, how you read individuals based on what they're wearing and that just in a crowd. And I think when you're in working in film and theater, uh, film and television, as opposed to in theater, the crowd and the background become really important, but you never get a backstory. You never know who they are or what they're doing. But the thing about if you're doing something that's 1940s or 1930s, they'll all be dressed in a particular period, but you want people to be individually very characterful so that you're not just looking at kind of, a group and it's kind of very homogenous and they're all doing the same thing. So you have to really think about those people and say, okay, this person is a single mother. They've got three kids with them. They don't have very much money. They've this, that, and the other. And then you dress them like that. And they might just brush past camera, but you're taking in the audience is taking in that whole scene and they'll be taking in the kind of social situation and the particular affluence of an area on the base of the crowd, or maybe it's a very diverse area. Um, all of those things that aren't necessarily someone doesn't arrive in and go hi I'm this character and I have just entered this area of London but you want to really create that area and the way to do that is by dressing the people in a certain way by dressing this the set in a certain way and that is I think that is visual dramaturgy in a way I don't know I mean it's a while since I've actually thought about um yeah dramaturgy and, and that whole theory but it's uh, as a designer that's a massive part of what you're doing and it's not just about colors and it's not just about the palette it really is about who those people are and what they're doing and I think if you want there's nothing worse than like that again when you're looking at a crowd scene having someone in the background making a big deal out of what they're doing or not knowing what they're meant to be doing and then so if everyone has a story then that whole image is so much more interesting and also it also just flows and I think that's the same thing even on stage you might necessarily, you don't have, to, you don't wait for your line. Everyone's not just thinking about their line, they're thinking about their character and they're thinking about the overall setup. Um, and yeah, so I think that's hugely important and a hugely important, and it comes back to again, not necessarily noticing um, the design or not necessarily noticing the design, it's you're just taking in the whole image. And yeah, so. I think I, I'll start referring to myself as a, de a designer turge. Is that what you were calling it? Yeah, designer turge. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, so I suppose then as a designer, then you are kind of a storyteller. 
um, in a way, if you're really thinking about the backgrounds of all the characters and what you're doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, massively for me, costume design is just visual storytelling um, rather than, yeah, specifically just, just designing. I mean, in theatre, the tent, I used to do a lot more costume drawings. Now I don't really do them because it's it, it's so much more about a mood of a scene. It's about, um, like, it's not very specifically just being like, this is a dress that this person is going to wear. It's so much more about a, a whole broad perspective and about yeah the visual imagery really than it is necessarily about one specific design um so then thinking about that idea of of design liturgy of storytelling and then like you were speaking about idea of collaboration i'm wondering um do you think that you have your own style that you can see transported between your projects or do you, like would you yeah, I mean, obviously you have to really work to create the cohesive vision of, of what the final project is, but do you think you can still look at that and be like, yeah, I can see my fingerprints there? Or do you think that you almost kind of just like relinquish yourself to whatever it, it has to be ultimately? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really interesting question because I'm not 100% sure. I think there's very, there are different designers out there and they do things in, in very different ways. And the, the school of thought and the people that I work with um, like Jacqueline Durr and Lindy Hemmings, another costume designer who I work with, and Jacqueline used to assist her. And we're all sort of um, both Lindy and Jacqueline started working with Mike Lee, who I had looked into when I was doing actually my dissertation on semiotics. And that's how I got my first opportunity was, was through him. And he very much, uh, his process is not about creating a script, it's about creating characters. And then the script comes from characters, but no actor in a scene is, is given a full script. They all just know who they are and they respond accordingly. And I think we take our approach to costume design very much from that kind of school of thought. So I would like to think that that, that rings through in what we do if you were to analyze things side by side, but I don't think anyone would necessarily, again, I hope people would just watch something and take in the story rather than seeing a designer's fingerprints all over it. Um, there are things mm. I've done that have been stylized and I do really enjoy working on things that are stylized and I love detail and focusing in on, on uh, particular patterns and embroideries and textiles and little minute things and maybe if someone was looking at something they might see those things. I'd love, I love nothing more than when someone points out something to me that I spent ages working on and they suddenly have noticed that. Um, but yeah, I, again, I think it would have to be someone who looks at something objectively. I'm not sure if I necessarily noticed um, a similarity. I think the, the variation of period as well and the variation of projects means it's no two things should really be the same. Yeah, and um, speaking about the, the detail that people notice, I, I watched a good few videos myself, just personally about the costume design for Little Women, um, and I saw I saw one video that was talking about how Joe and Laurie they both wore these kind of waistcoats that they like would swap interchangeably. I'm just I'm just curious as to how like uh, those kind of details came about, or like because you obviously you had a hand in the in the process, you were quite integral to the costume team there. Yeah, I think that was. The, those were notes and things that came from um, the book actually originally and, and details. Um, and also it was an approach that, that Greta, the director wanted. She really wanted to, to have that sense of, you know, almost that they were like, you know, like siblings, like sharing things. And I think um, 
one thing you often don't see in, in productions like hand-me-downs, and we were following them in such a trajectory in the four, four sisters to begin with, that you imagine four sisters in the 1860s in a quite poor family, there's no way they were just getting a, a new dress every, you know, every so often. But we also had to tell, we had to make sure that the audience knew the passage of time was happening. So like that, again, you had to change the costumes quite a lot because you needed to show them across 10, 15 years and you were intercutting back between different periods. So you want, it couldn't be confusing to the audience, you had to make them see that there was a passage of time and where they were in the story. So part of that was also the sharing thing because it wasn't Joe wearing that dress anymore, it was Beth, so time had moved on. Um, and the same thing with Joe and Laurie, that their friendship had grown. And um, that was the main thing that Joe wanted. She had wanted to be a boy, she'd wanted to go to war, she wanted so much to have the liberties and the education that Laurie was getting. And so they, there was that element between them that they were sharing things and you would look at Joe and you just think that that's what she was wearing but it actually was a boy's waistcoat and some of the things that she was wearing were very boyish because she wanted the freedom that boys clothes would give her she didn't wear a crinoline cage all of those things the Marge family were specifically quite bohemian and that those elements um meant that they weren't following the traditions and the norms that everyone else in society was and yeah so that was a big part of it Oh, yeah, I think I think that really came across just I remember just seeing it and thinking, oh, wow, this is beautiful. And then afterwards watching like loads of videos of people analyzing and being like, oh, so many details. That's amazing. Um, so you're mentioning then about like hand-me-downs. And then I think now nowadays, I mean, we're gaining more awareness of sustainability. But nowadays, it's like it's very normal to like try and conceal the fact that you might wear an outfit twice, both probably in film and then in just in real life. So I'm wondering. Um, you've done you're not you're not only a costume designer but a sustainability advocate um so I, I i wonder could you tell us about how the incentive to create the costume directory came about uh, and how it's operating now um yeah so the the costume directory um is basically well it started as uh, an index of ethical and sustainable contacts um and suppliers and fabric suppliers and brands for costume designers and uh, I started it um, five or six years ago now, but it was really for me the the catalyst was um, the Rana Plaza disaster in 2013, um, which killed over a thousand garment workers in Bangladesh. And, and when that happened, it really struck home with me that, um, you know, there's people in the world who make clothing for a living um, who put their lives at risk and are paid really badly and um, are treated so unfairly and as someone who does make clothing for a living here I just I, it just really sat with me and I I'm very aware that as costume designers our impact is is significantly higher than the average consumer we make produce so much and again when you think about a crowd scene it, when you look at a any tv show any film and you see an army of of 500 people or you see a, a you know a club night and it's full of people there and you've got like the thousands and thousands of costumes that get made for every single tv or film show and some of them might be period they might be manufactured but all those textiles need to be bought if they're um contemporary and they're shopped for and it's unfortunately contemporary productions are now cheaper to shop for uh, than they are to hire so a lot of the time people are just going 
to the high street to Primark to Zara to Topshop and just buying a huge amount um, which just gets wasted at the end. It might get donated to charity shop, but it's still excessive consumption. Um, and so I started to think about, well, as costume designers, what what power do we have? Can we do things in a different way? Um, do we know enough about what we're doing? And it's not about the idea that suddenly we're going to manage to, to do everything secondhand and we're not going to have to shop for things or we're going to be able to get all our textiles manufactured in a fair and safe way. But it's actually just about asking the questions, about asking, looking at brands that we are shopping from, seeing where things are made, how they're made, by who are they paid a living wage, looking at the textiles. Um, and so going from a, an approach of people and ethics to begin with, I started to learn a lot more about sustainability. Um, I didn't know a huge amount prior to kind of like starting the directory or really just starting to think about it, but I realized that actually climate change is happening. It's already happening in the world. It's affecting the poorest people and our way of living is really contributing to you know, inequality across the world. Um, and again, it's just, I think I'm not an expert about it. I'm only kind of learning on the job as I'm going, but trying to get people to think more long-term and not short-term, often we just think about the project we're doing now um, you know it's a six month thing everyone's there's never enough time there's never enough money you kind of say oh maybe I'll do that on the next thing or well I do recycle at home but when I go to work I don't because you know the infrastructure isn't there and and there's a, a myriad we just accept a lot of behavior in these in in this industry in film tv in theater that we wouldn't accept elsewhere because we feel like we're, we're producing something and the main aim is what we're producing. So it's either the, the show and when the show goes up, it's great. And when the film is made or the TV production airs, that's, that's brilliant. And then we go on to the next job, but we have to take a bit more responsibility for how we're producing those things. And for, I mean, looking after the people who are making it. So that means kind of thinking about ourselves and the welfare of those people who are working on a project and then thinking about everyone in the, in, in the supply chain really as well. And it's not easy and it's not perfect, but I think the reason behind the costume directory was essentially me going, okay, often we kind of keep our contacts close to our chest. So we might work with a particular embroiderer or we might work with a particular fabric supplier and we don't tell anyone about it. And so the idea was to go, okay, well, here are all my contacts. Here's what I've learned about uh, ethical sourcing and sustainability. Um, now can you share your contacts and we all try and use and also it was about trying to get more business going to those suppliers who are trying to do the right thing and to those brands that are trying to use do the right thing so that they get increased revenue and that they have the ability to to move forward and to push forward and the more business they get the more that they can kind of do good and set set the trajectory because I think people underestimate how much impact you can have by actually showing a business that you're going to go elsewhere um, and certainly in the six years since I started the costume directory the general way people have been speaking the general approach people have to things has moved forward and um, we talk a lot more about because the impact and the carbon impact of actually buying a costume you know, head to toe from shoes to jeans, like the impact of one outfit is huge. And so if you're just shopping for a whole show, your your carbon footprint is massive. If you're manufacturing, like say on something like, um, you know, any superhero film I've worked on or anything that's that has a massive costume department, um, you might have 70 or 80 people working in that department. You're manufacturing 
massive amounts. You're buying thousands and thousands of meters of fabric. You're buying so like it's, you know, it's millions of pounds that are being spent on fabrics and textiles and all of those things. If you if those are if that's being spent on resources uh, on things that are being manufactured in a fair way or you're trying to buy secondhand fabrics secondhand clothing you can save a massive amount I think it's just putting a bit more thought into things um, and I'm in no way saying I'm perfect or that sometimes I always say you can't really compromise the design because as soon as you do that people the cynics out there will go well it's not possible so you have to just aim and aspire to do things like oh okay well I'm going to try and do it secondhand and if I can't I can't but at least that's my starting point or I'm going to try and get all my cotton and linen and everything from organic sources or certified fair trade and everything and if I can't we can't find it then we move on elsewhere or you know we're going to try and use public transport to begin with and then when we can't you know and it's so it's it's not compromising because I think if any of us were to really think about it and to think about the overall climate crisis or anything like that I think we'd probably go and work in different industries but um it, you need people working in our industry to actually think about it and to try and offset what we're doing and do it in a more manageable way. Because it's not even just me, it's like you guys are 10, 15 years behind me. If, if I often think I should be retiring in about 2050, <laughs> like what will the world be like then? <laughs> and it's, so people are coming into this industry looking to keep working into their 50s and 60s, which will be much further along. And, and just seeing what the effect of of the pandemic and the coronavirus crisis has done to our industry and and where people suddenly aren't supported and aren't being looked after and we have to change so that we can work and operate in 20 30 years and that we know how to to work and operate because we have to modernize and just look at doing things in a different way so so yeah the costume directory in terms of where it is now is um it's a free resource. It's something I do in my spare time and I have increasingly less spare time. So luckily there's quite a few other people mm. in the who sort of taken it on. And I kind of want people to just use it and then take it onto their own projects and, and expand upon it and come up with their own ideas and their own way of doing things and come back and share. And, and that's really sort of what it's about. Well, it's really great to hear you talk about that because uh, yeah, we, we know ourselves like just how, you know, everything in theatre is short term, everything, so much of art is short term and, and we try and implement various like sustainability policies here, but it's, it's, it is difficult to maintain and it's really just great to see people like yourself just leading that uh, and like in the real world, like in the paid industry. <laughs> um, so speaking of like what has to change, like, do you think it's... In do you think that it's most important that everyone working in an, on a particular project always has maybe that question going in the back of their mind, what can I do? Or do you think that it's most effective really that it would be the head of, should there be like a sustainability advisor on a team or should that be led by the head of a team, like the head of a costume team or head of a set team? Or should that come from the director or the, or the producers? Or do you think that it's more of a top-down thing or do you think as long as everyone's doing something? That's enough. Um, I think it should be a top down, bottom up, kind of everyone talking about it. I think we should talk about it as early as when we start talking about budget. I think if people have to have a carbon budget in the same way they have to have a financial budget. I mean, we all work within restrictions and produce really great things. And mm. I think sometimes you have to make choices when you've got a budget and it's a money choice. You have to make choices based on what you can afford. And if you've got, you know, 500 pounds or if you've got a million pounds, that 
determines what you're allowed to do. And so I think if we had like a carbon budget or we had certain um, structures that we had to adhere to, then we would make choices and still probably find ways to be really creative within those choices. But we are so far away from that um, because there isn't a fixed, you know, everyone wants someone else to, to sort it out. But the reality is we're all freelancers. And so we're not working for Google and we're not working for a an overall organization that can make sure we've got the right bins in the right places or they're offsetting mm -hmm. our carbon or we can say we don't want to take that particular flight or we don't you know let's zoom do there's there isn't an infrastructure that that will carry through from one production to the next and a lot of the big studios and a lot of the theater companies they are doing things but they requ they require all of us to then make sure we follow the rules and, and it happens and for us to take on what we learn from one production and bring it on to the next and also it just it requires people to speak up. I mean, with me, I often find the people who come in who know the most are our trainees and our juniors because they've just gone to school. You know, they've grown up with it. They know a lot more mm. than I know um, and certainly a lot more than the people above me know. So there's a lot of people in, in our industry who just haven't had to think about it. We don't have on the job training. We don't go to kind of in-service days where we learn about these kind of things. Um, and so I think it really takes everyone speaking up, it takes people saying, oh, why are we doing this? Just asking questions and, and looking at how we can do it. And yeah, I, I think the more people talk about it, I mean, I've, I've recently joined a group called Cut It, which is um, crew led action for the climate crisis. And it's mm -hmm. bringing together not just um, costume designers, but production designers, directors, actors, cinematographers, gaffers. So everyone working in film and television coming together. And the amount of times when you're on a production and you get to the set that you're under such time pressure and you're under such, there's just pressure and stress everywhere that no one's really thinking about the climate crisis. You know, it's not the first thing everyone starts talking about. Yeah. But when you're in a, a world where you realize, oh, actually, you know, uh, the gaffer cares about this and, and suddenly he started using a different form of lighting so that he's not you know the producer has looked at trying to get a generator that's not a diesel generator so that uh, our trucks aren't powering off diesel when you realize that other people are trying to make an effort it encourages you to make a bit more of an effort so I think the more vocal people are about the incremental changes they're making in their own world and we all have a certain amount of power whether or not you're the the trainee or you're the producer or you're the head of the department there are, you do a certain amount of tasks on a daily basis and you can have a certain amount of control. And the biggest thing I think you can have control over is your voice and speaking up um, where you see things that aren't, aren't right. And I think often people coming into the industry think that they need to learn from those above and they don't realize how much they can offer in terms of being from a particular generation and being from a particular world and, and, and knowing a lot more in certain areas than, than those around them do. And I think that that's one thing that, um, yeah, for anyone starting out is just to remember to, to speak up and that not to trust that those above you know exactly what they're doing because they don't always. That's really great advice. I guess, yeah, that is something that's important in any, like in any, in a social circle even, I think it's important just to ask. Mm. To ask those questions to be conscious of that um so i have another question and it's just for my own curiosity in a totally different vein and um, uh you were speaking then about you know you came to, you enjoyed costume because you've done a lot of art and drawing and then but now you don't really do a lot of you don't draw it out anymore you don't sketch it out as much i'm kind of wondering in terms of just like 
creative origins, like as a child, maybe reading a book, uh, some people like like to have have seen the movie of the book. They can imagine the character. Some people like to have picture books because it enhances the experience. And some people don't like to have any of that just because they have the control over the image themselves. I'm wondering, like, do you fall into any of those categories or how you found like just imaginary worlds and your own input into them as a child in terms of how you consumed fiction? Um, that is a really interesting question. And I think when I was a child, I, I just loved drawing. I actually drew a lot more houses and I always thought maybe I'd go into like architecture or interior design or something like that, because I used to sort of write little stories in my head and then I'd, mm. I'd draw kind of particular things or and they always sort of surrounded some form of house like a big house with a balcony or something like that or yeah. and then I started drawing like dresses and stuff as soon as I started looking a bit more at magazines and, and I think actually going to a convent school where I was taught how to knit and how to embroider and how to sew and all of those kind of things that people probably laugh about now but learning those things <laughs> I just loved making things and really got a huge amount of experience doing that and uh, I sometimes laugh I never did science but I did do home economics and it, it stood to me a lot more but yeah so I think as a child when I would read fiction I don't ever necessarily remember you know a favorite book being turned into a film and then being distraught by it because I used to read a lot but I don't um I don't I didn't you know I didn't ever really watch the Lord of the Rings films or anything like that that kind of destroyed a particular memory for me but it was definitely I definitely loved drawing and I definitely used to kind of come up with the little things in my head and then sort of try and draw them out. Um, do you have a favourite costume then that you've made? Um, or is that an easy question? <laughs> no I mean I look back at certain things and I think it's always the ones that you put the most amount of effort into where you really remember it I mean there was one film um I assistant designed with Jacqueline um Duran on and it was Mary Magdalene I don't know if anyone's ever really seen it because it came and it went into the cinema for like about a week but we spent a long time and um, we had all of our textiles hand woven in India and then we got um, a lot of the embroidery done by a group of Palestinian women um living in Jordan and we spent months and months collaborating uh with um our embroiderers who did such incredible work and my house is like full of you know pillows and everything I've made from all the because I just couldn't bear to have any piece of embroidery that they had done not sort of live on um and that for me I think was probably the most rewarding experience um of all even though when it came to the actual film I'm not sure how many people ended up seeing it but in terms of the creating of those textiles um yeah it, it was a really meaningful project wow the scope of that just sounds incredible um then what um do you like to have a keepsake from every project that you work on or is it really only the ones that you've maybe put the most effort into or have had the most impact on you you're not really allowed to be honest <laughs> um, because anything you do is is the property of the production company so i don't have any keepsakes that i've kept from any productions that i've worked on Okay, we'll just keep <laughs> I have total faith in you there. Yeah. Um, then yeah, it's been it's been so lovely to talk to you and just so interesting. I, it's fantastic just to hear from someone who's kind of just so central in this industry because we hear a lot from actors and writers, but like design is such an important and integral part of of anything you go and see. Um, 
So I have one last question for you, and that's, do you have a dream design? Is that something that exists or a sort of, would there be a particular adaptation that you've been like, oh, I would love to do that? Or, or do you think you just take projects as they come? Um, I probably just take projects from they come <laughs> or how they come, but I'd love to, I think I love working on period projects and, um, but I'd love to do something that's from a perspective that we haven't seen before or a time in history that we haven't really looked at from someone else's kind of perspective. I think we're all, very familiar with World War One, World War Two, sort of romantic versions of those periods, you know, the Henry VIII, all of all of those things that are, are done over and over again. And I'd love to work on something that's maybe, you know, the, the Mughal period in, in Indian history or looking at, you know, what was going on in Ireland in the 15th century, kind of things that just our period, but not what the history that we're completely familiar with or that we've all learned about. And I think whether it's 20th century history or whether it's like further, further back, just um, I'm far more interested in kind of the perspectives and the stories that haven't been told yet. Um, but obviously I'm not the one who writes those stories. So come on guys, Ooh. you know, <laughs> I start writing them and then um, yeah, I'll come and do the costumes. Wonderful. Yeah, we have, I think we've all seen our fair share of World War dramas yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for no, coming. Thank you so much. Um, it's so lovely to meet you both. And um, yeah, I hope I hope everything gets a little less virtual for you in the near future. <laughs> we hope so too. <laughs> thank you very much for listening to episode three of the DU Players Chat Show podcast. Today's episode was curated by Laura Harton. Our theme song was created by Nisha O'Quinnigan and Sinead was wonderfully interviewed by Shirka McCongo. Thank you very much for listening.